Okay, listen. <laughs> <laughs> Who picked this book, Sarah? I think I did. And look, I'm not I'm not ashamed. Sarah, I loved, I loved it. it. I loved it. Okay, but listen. <laughs> the number of times in this book where I resisted going to Google. <laughs> I mean. No, listen, I still haven't Googled it. I just, I, like, it's because, too. look, this is the book equivalent of, like, I have an extra stomach for dessert. <laughs> <laughs> that is the science at work here. Oh, my God. No, but, oh, my God, that's so perfect. I think we could just end. That's, I mean, first of all, that is absolutely the show title. <laughs> Oh, Second of all, I really, I mean, I have so many things I want to talk. I have so many things I want to talk about, but also like I resist, like I don't want to look it up. Well, because I think I've explained the science already. Okay, welcome to Faded Mates, everyone. <laughs> I'm Sarah McLean. I read romance novels and I write them. I'm Jennifer Prokop, a romance reader and editor. <laughs> and this week. We're talking about Lisa Valdez's passion. Which, okay, one of the things that's great about Amazon, if you are a longtime Kindle user, is it's going to tell you when you, when you, when you ordered this you book. You read this on Kindle? I read this on Kindle in 2010. I did never, I never read this in paper. Okay, well, I can do one better <laughs> because I have a first edition. Ooh. 2000, Rebecca Romney. She missed this one for the catalog. I mean, it's an amazing. I have a first edition print copy of this book, which I bought in 2005 because it was on a shelf in a bookstore. And I was like, oh, a new historical author, which those of you who are out there who are not writers and read books before ebooks know that like there was a moment there every person was just looking for like a new historical writer around then well you found one (laughs) woof well and you know it's interesting so can i ask you a question before we talk about the book itself Mm -hmm. do you lisa so in in my kindle this is organized as the passion quartet but two of them were only two were written and it doesn't look like there's many other, like, there's, like, one other book. So do we know anything about Lisa Valdez? So Lisa Valdez is a little bit of a romance mystery. Okay. She's somebody who comes up in conversation a lot because of passion. And sure. we'll talk about why. Um, I mean, and I should say, let me let me also say, you guys, I don't save every book that I have no. ever bought. So there is some, this book has moved multiple houses with me. It went to graduate school with me and came back. I mean, it has has taken a, a ride with me. Um, and so there is, so on the one hand, there is the kind of like interest in passion as a text of the genre, which we'll get to, because it is whether, no matter how you feel about the science of it, it is certainly a moment. It marks a very specific kind of change to historicals, you know, in time. But it also was a huge thing in traditional romance for this kind. Now, I am not, don't send me letters. I am not saying erotic historicals did not exist before Passion. What I am saying is that erotic historicals were not like on the shelf at Walmart before Passion. Um, And so it was one of these things that when it came out as a reader, I can remember being like, I've never read anything like this. This is something completely different. My understanding is that the writers in the genre were also like, what is this? Like, how is this going to change things? Um, And I think it sold very well. I mean, there's we all kind of read it at some point. Right? Yeah, it just feels like a... It's in the zeitgeist. Yes. <laughs> you know? And so, um, but Lisa Valdez was a mystery. I mean, she, there's a photograph on her website. Mm-hmm. She wrote Passion, and she teed up, as many of us do, Patience in the epilogue yep. of Passion. And so we were all like, give it. 
where is this other book? Because this is bananas, but I want more, Mm -hmm. right? And then she kind of disappeared. And she disappeared for years. I might have read Passion when Patience came out. Patience is heavily BDSM. Like, heavily. Like, super dom, dom sub. And... The what's interesting about it is that over the course of time, and all of this is hearsay, so I'm just okay. going to tell you like what you hear when you ask, but it doesn't mean anything. And Lisa Valdez, if you are out there and you are listening and you want to come on Faded Mates, Jen and I haven't talked about this, but I feel I speak for both of us when I say, come on Faded Mates and talk to us about whatever you want to talk to us and correct the record if you would like. Um But what you hear is that the response to passion was so incendiary. Like, it was either, holy crap, this is amazing, I've never read anything like it, whereas I want more, or from the kind of old school, you know, the historical readers and writers who we still hear about when we talk about, like, things that would never happen in in history, which we know is bunk. I mean, we just it's just wrong. The the perception of history as being without sex, without scandal, without, you know, women who do things that are, you know, revolutionary and, you know, and sex. Well, there might be a biological problem with the sex here, but that's a different thing. <laughs> a different thing entirely. <laughs> right. Absolutely. But that sort of school of historical reader slash writer apparently really came for this book. Hmm. I don't remember. I wasn't writing at that point. So for me, it was literally just like, where's the next one as a reader? And But what I will tell you is that since then, I have seen romance come for books. And I have seen in real time what it can do to an author's mojo. Yeah. And I think that it is – and so what you hear often is that she took a long time to write Patience because she was in her head about passion and the response to passion. And that sucks. Yeah. And if you were one of those people, you should write her a letter or something and tell her you're sorry. Don't write her a letter. She doesn't want to hear from you. But you should say out loud into the universe here in January of 2022 that you're sorry. Patience came out in 2010. Yes. It came out right after what? Nine Rules. Oh, interesting. Be- well, I remember this because... Patience hit the New York Times list the week that New- that Nine Rules fell off the New York Times list. And I was like, oh, what? Patience? And I ran to buy it. <laughs> of course. Of course. It, was this before or after Fifty Shades then? No, it was before Fifty Shades. At least it was before Fifty Shades was a thing. Yeah. I don't know the timeline of... Master of the Universe or whatever it was separately. Well, right, exactly. Okay. Um, no, but it it was sort of post Twilight, before Fifty Shades, and it was heavily. I mean, like Patience, I did not reread, but as I recall it, it felt like, oh wow, there's a lot of like red asses <laughs> in this book. Fair. No, well, I mean, what's interesting is I had the same experience, which is as I was rereading Passion, I was like, I've reread this a couple times. I haven't reread it in years, but Patience has like, I, I, you know, so I'm like, I'm going to reread it. It's, here's the thing about this book. It, we've talked about swinging for the fences, right? Mm-hmm. This book swings for the fucking fence. Yes. And like, we can talk forever about whether or not we think that it like clears the fence, but it's doing a thing that oh, does, yeah. because at the time, so paranormal exists, and, we, you know, we know paranormal is getting sexier and sexier. And it's the boom of paranormal at this point. Like, everyone's reading paranormal. You know, buses are traveling around the country carrying paranormal authors right. everywhere. Like, it's right. – you can't throw a stone and not hit a, like, massive paranormal property. And there is something very sexy and edgy and uh, – 
I guess, like, wicked about those, like, big paranormal properties. Mm -hmm. There's, like, a ballsiness to them. Yeah. And I think what was happening in historicals is we had sort of come off of the, like, 90s explosion of historicals and all the things that we've talked about historicals doing. But we still, at this point, like, Lisa Kleypas is writing sexy, but she's not writing this. Right? Nobody's... And remember, Bridgerton is the huge historical property at this time. Like, you can't... 2005, for sure. Right? In 2005, like, Julia Quinn puts out a book, and she sells, you know, 200,000 copies in the first however long. And those books are getting almost less sexy as they progress. Right? Like, she's writing the sort of, like, quieter hero, the, like, beta hero, the, like, you know, she's, she's like, really writing a quieter kind of romance. Yeah. It's, it was fascinating to reread again. I was doing a little digging around, same thing, mm-hmm. like, kind of, who's Lisa Valdez? And in 2014, there's a piece attributed to her on um, the website, the blog of Je- author Jess Michaels. Oh, who would – it would make sense Jess and Lisa know each other. Okay. And – but, you know, this, again, is like four years after Patience. And it is talking about, like, why like why include sex? Like, sort of, like, what is it and how you sh- – it basically is, like, a really strong defense of – why it's included and it's part in the story and the idea that you can't just skip it. If you are skipping it, you're skipping the story itself. Mm -hmm. And it's really rooted in, I think, something I spent a lot of time thinking about was I was reading this book, which was how tightly integrated it is into the story itself. Tightly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh Anyway, <laughs> tightly, how tightly integrated it is. Um, no, but the, yes, I think you're 100% true. I also think, like, Lisa Valdez's, pa- like, passion comes out and, like, lands big Yeah, from Berkeley. Like, it's a traditional romance that's on the shelves at, his, mm-hmm. at Walmart. It begins with... Him yes. like groping her at mm-hmm. like a at the World's Fair at the Crystal Palace, which so yeah, which I spent a lot of time also looking. Getty Images has hundreds of yeah images of like what that would have looked yeah. like, and like I think that's it too, right? It's that sort of imagine walking into a Walmart today and picking a book off the shelf and opening it, and the first line of the book being his hand held her breast, which is the first line of this of book. The book. Like, and you have a moment where you're like, oh, no, not only was it doing something different and in many ways kind of codifying the idea that an erotic historical could exist and could receive the support and, you know, I don't know, stamp of approval of traditional publishing and yeah. by and by extension, historical readers and the historical community. But it was also saying, it was also kind of like blowing the door open and saying, books can, these romances can look different. But at the same time, like, and I don't, I don't know, there's something going on here because it didn't shift the, it shifted the genre, I think, in some ways, like historical writers Often, when we're, like, quiet talking, right, we'll say, like, can I write this in a sex scene to each other? And often the response is, well, passion. And that's, like, that's a little glimpse at, like, what we do on the back end. Also, it never happened, right? Like, this book lives on an island somewhere, right? Like, this, the traditional historical never went in this direction, Right. You know, you think about the sexy traditional historical writers now. I mean, the people who we point to as, like, these people write sexy. Elizabeth Hoyt, you know, Tessa Dare, Bob me. Jenkins, right. You know, yeah. I mean, but... but Not that sexy. Not none this. of us are writing... Erotic historical romance, essentially. Exactly. Traditionally. Traditionally. I, I just want to say traditionally, because we also have, you know, Kate Pierce and Jess Michaels and Nicola yes. Davidson and, you know... Any number of people writing erotic historicals. But those people are still fighting on a weekly basis the charge that they are a historical. And that's all happening 
in E, largely. That's, yes. like, self-publishing digital. That's happening in digitally. But, like, you just don't see this historical. It's like there was one, and then it... And it crushed it. I mean, like, it crushed it. When Patience came out five years later, it hit the Times list. It's also the most overtly, like, religious text. Yes, I was thinking, yes. She is, I mean, like, this could very well be uh, inspirational. Well, yeah, I mean, it's right. It's like a predecessor. It's like with, it's like Lisa Valdez walked so Sierra Simone could run. Absolutely. I found myself thinking a lot about, like, look, sex, sexiness comes and goes in waves in romance. And we are at a, a point in romance right now where I think traditionally published books are less, there's less sex on page, largely speaking. I mean, again, this is like an, a, an, a generalization. Yeah. No, of course, true. we could all find exceptions. And the thing that I was thinking about a lot with this book is – that it makes a really strong case. And I feel like, you know, we're constantly like, how do you how do you define erotic romance, right? And like, so the classic definition, which we've talked about a million times, is you can't take this, the sex scenes out of the book, the whole plot just like collapses on itself. Like it's a really key part to the plot. Jennifer Porter, who is a Twitter a librarian and a Twitter user. who I think And is, an avowed Lisa Valdez fan. Oh, I'm sure. Who says really smart things about romance all the time. Mm-hmm. Has made the point that she thinks that erotic romance is like essentially the movement of the, the people involved in the relationship are exploring their relationship and deepening their relationship through their sexual relationship. Yes, I think that's accurate. I do, we too. We also had Nikki on to talk about this, right? Nikki Sloan. In a good erotic romance, in a perfect erotic romance, the body is just as important as the mind, is just as important as the soul. And what I mean by that is we live in a society where, like, people will talk all the time about, like, I don't know, like their exercise regimens. It's a new year, right? Like I'm a jogger. I'm a runner. I like uh, get on my, what is that? Elliptical. My, whatever oh, my that. Peloton. My Peloton, right? Like it's perfectly acceptable to be perfecting your body when it comes to like, you know, your health. One of the things I struggle a little bit with is the way that romance still pulls away from like sex as being a legitimate thing that your body does that feels great, that is awesome and fun, and that is like really tied into like many of us, like how do we feel about ourselves is how we feel about our bodies. And that's like both positive and negative. And I think the thing I loved about this book was this feeling that like it leads with their bodies. It leads with them their physical yes. connection they have. And I know I'm like muddling this. Maybe this seems really obvious, but in no. a, in a world right now where so many traditionally published romances are like, we're going to just pretend that doesn't exist. That everything instead is like banter or everything instead is, is, is like, I don't know, like what can we like throw up as an impediment to this? The way that, that passion and Mark connect physically is ultimately really important how they connect emotionally. Yes. And then in the end, how they connect literally, like, like they essentially like marry each other in their own eyes in like a field outside her dad's house. Yep. Right? Spiritually. Yep. Yes. And, and, and I think that's it. And I had this moment, like, this is a perfect erotic romance because they just stack all up right on top of each other. And, and there's no, it's just, I don't know. It's perfect. It's really it's a perfect. really great erotic historical. Yeah. It's really great, and I think you know what you're saying really is mirrored in the text in a lot of ways, and maybe some of the reason why we were also shocked by it and continue to be shocked by it. Like, I think that if this were contemporary, we would not be shocked by it. Like, and and may and I. Tell me I'm wrong, which is fine. I'm just saying, like, in historicals, you don't see these concrete nouns, right? Like, you don't see, I hope everyone's wearing their headphones around children. You don't see, like, cock and clit and, you know, like, cunt. Like, you just don't see it. You don't see sex. I know, I mean, I write it, right? Right. I don't use, I don't, 
I don't use these words as liberally as she does. And it's not because I don't, I mean, like, I don't know why. I think that's, when I was reading it, I was really thinking about, like, why don't historicals use this kind of language, which is, you know, I think, I mean, it's what would be called coarse, right? Mm -hmm. But there's nothing coarse about the way she uses these words. And there's nothing, in fact, one might argue that her language is really florid. It's like purple almost. Like it just edges up on purple. But it's also so visceral. I mean, like that's what I'm getting. Like, it, and I've said before, I think I've like thrown it off. Like, like you can lead with sex in a book. People don't really do it anymore, but you can. And and then they figure yeah, out but how to be no, together. It's incredibly difficult. But this like it's so hard to do this. I was thinking about that oh, too. Yeah. Like, Swinging for the fences from page one, line one. Line one, right? Right. I mean, if you say we're going to start this book and he, two strangers are going to be having sex in public in Victorian England. Yes. Like, where are we going? For those of you who think about plot, like, this is an incredibly difficult structure to start with. This This is an act one opener that, like... It feels like it is virtually impossible to imagine how you would continue from here as a writer. And Lisa Valdez has it so clear in her mind. She knows exactly what she's doing. She also deftly does. Yes. uh, Then, like, we don't have to talk about this now because we haven't talked about it. We have to sort of, like, you know, introduce the book. But, like, she (laughs) deftly uses the secret baby trope. Like, oh, absolutely. There is a remarkable, like, it's remarkable. Because she does, it's like it's not there, and then suddenly it's there. So, I don't know, 800 minutes in, let's just, She's like, good. Maybe, I mean, like, this is my other thing. It's like, nobody ever says, well, maybe she's somebody else. Yeah, I mean. Maybe I she, know. I mean, I can't imagine, she's so good at it. That I can't imagine she's not writing something. Well, right, exactly. The frustration with that always is like, I don't really, like, you know, admit your pen names or don't admit your pen names, but, like, I just want to know. Like, if you're writing something else, I want to read it. Just, like, exactly. <laughs> right, exactly. I don't need to know who you are. I just want to read other books. Just somebody slip me, like, a little deal. Okay. We are, are far afield. Let's go back and just talk real briefly about the plot. So... Mark and Passion are in both in the Crystal Palace exhibit. It's which is gorgeous. If yes. you have never looked at pictures of the Crystal the Crystal Palace, you should. I'll put it's, a link in show notes. Getty listen, Images has hundreds of them. It's amazing. You think late stage capitalism overspends? Like talk about these World Fair things, World's Fair yeah. things, where like they built whole buildings and then took them down. Sure. Well, I live in Hyde Park, Chicago, where that happened. So yeah. So they essentially, like, run into each other. They're, he is an earl. She's a commoner. And she's a widow. And but they don't they, know. Nobody knows. They don't they know, know each other. They don't know each other's names. They don't know who they are. But well, there's they, no reason for them to know each other, right? Right. I mean, that's the other thing, right? Like, the class stuff is really interesting, this book. And they essentially have not just, like, a one-night stand. I mean, it's, like, immediately after a meeting, he kind of pulls her behind a screen. They're just, like, there's this electric chemistry between, be, between them. Mates. It's fate of me. Yes. And he and they have sex behind the screen inside the literal exhibition of the Crystal Palace. I mean, right? what? And <laughs> they go back and do it every day for a couple of days before he has his brother kind of follow her out to figure out where she lives. And then it's in her bedroom or his, like, everything is so secret be- between them because at the same time that this is happening, she's like, I'm just in London for a couple months to visit. I'm coming out of mourning. Her husband died two years earlier. It was a miserable, unhappy marriage. And so she's just, like, visiting her cousin and her aunt while he is being blackmailed to keep, essentially, a family secret. And it turns out, of course, that the woman he is going to have to marry is Passion's cousin. So the entire time they are having this torrid affair, right, in secret, neither of them knows that they are about to be connected in another way. And it's so visceral. Everything about this book is just... There's no, it's, oh, God, this book's so, this book was great. So I guess we could get out of the way 
the silly part. Do we part want of it. to talk about sex? Yeah, almost. Because the part that is, it's, oh, it's really interesting. It's an interesting dichotomy, right? Because it's so oh. of the body. Yes, but there's this one part. So, you know, basically Mark has the biggest dick of any dick that's ever dicked. Gigantic. The Gigantic. biggest dick at boarding school. Well, I mean, I mean, biggest, sure. it seems like biggest dick in pornography, too. Like, I mean, you know just what it reminded gigantic. me of in um, <laughs> Magic Mike, <laughs> Big Dick Richie. Yes. Yes. Who has the same problem? Like I my big my dick is and then, so big. It can't even entirely get in these. Yes, and then he finds Andy McDowell. Sure. And it's the only the, woman and who has a perfect. Well, there's a poem in in passion that they have and and Big Dick Richie maybe <laughs> could Re- needs needs to <laughs> learn it. So this is like so okay, anyway. So but wait, the poem is basically like no matter who she is, like, when I yes. find the woman who can, like, fit me, yes. that's the woman I'm going to marry. So they have sex behind the screen in the Crystal mm-hmm. Palace. And it's clear he has a very large penis. Sure. But, like, empirically. But, like, it's just, like, okay, here are two people having, like, it, yeah. it's a large. There's a lot of, like, door-to-her-womb talk in the beginning of this. <laughs> yes. We should maybe content warn this Part of the conversation. I don't know. Like, I don't know what. I th- it feels like a lot. This does yes. feel like a lot. So just, you know, if you have, if you, if this feels like a lot to you right now, maybe skip forward a few minutes um, <laughs> to the next chapter. Maybe we'll chapter this conversation. Yes. So, okay. And then, so, so then it sort of feels like, okay, well, and then he says, like, he says to his brother, he goes to his brother and he's like, I, she, I fit. And the brother's yeah. like. Great. What? That's amazing. I want to meet her. And you're, it's a little bit like, it's sort of charming and funny. And you sort of see the like brothers. Right. And their relationship. And then like they have sex again and then again and then again and then again. And then they have this like, this scene where he goes to her home. Yes. Like he climbs the trellis. I love a climbs the trellis scene. Of course. In at the in the darkness. And, like, he gets himself into her bedroom. And he's like, where are the servants? And she's, like, on the other side of the house. And he's like, okay, we're going to do this right. Because now we have all the tools at our disposal. Like, we have a bed. And he penetrates her. And then it's like, he penetrates her Beyond the the he's boundaries like, of human anatomy, it feels like, like of like cis woman's anatomy, and I yeah. don't. I, Where is he? I'm confused. Well, it's like it's like he found a little pocket. Well, there's a pop involved, yeah. and I don't like that word. <laughs> no, no. And so it's like basically like he pops through. Yes. Into a pocket of sorts. <laughs> and then I'm, and like at some point, and look, I've had an IUD inserted. So, like, Same. none of this is great for me. Like, I mean, <laughs> I just feel like, like, there's a lot of, you know, any, again, like, I, it just, like, anybody who was born with a cervix and has had a, you know, cervical anything knows yeah. that, like, this is not, like, a comfortable experience for <laughs> most of us, I don't think. So, I think, but, and then at some point I was like, is he, like, through in there, like, like as an IUD would be? Or is it outside? And it's confusing and also, like, not great, but then no. why am I reading it and why can't I stop? And I have sure. questions, and at the same time, he's she's like, I can feel you, like, yeah. you're another organ. And I'm like, oh, my God, what's happening? It's Yeah, <laughs> it was a lot. He yeah. is like, I've never... I've never been in this far before. Yeah. Like, this is, this is uh, like, your body was made for mine, which is what we is are... So here's the thing. It's what Jen was saying earlier, what you were saying earlier about yeah. like, phys- the physicality of this book. Like, the... It's not a metaphor. It is a li- they are yes. literally made for each other. She she yes. is shaped differently. I mean, this is a not like other girls <laughs> thing. <laughs> My cervix is not like other girls. Taken right. to 11. <laughs> so 
11,000. So I don't get it. I asked on Twitter. Somebody suggested that, like, maybe she has, like, a tilted, like, maybe there is, like, a slightly possible scientific thing here. Um, I did put it to Dr. Jennifer Gunther. (laughs) Um, Like, perhaps she would like to give us her analysis of the particular issue. I will keep you all posted (laughs) if that happens. It really feels like yeah. something is up in there. I mean, something well, is clearly up in there. Scene. <laughs> <laughs> See, yeah. You know, well, I, so I was, I, I, I will say, <laughs> okay, so Sarah's right. This is physically how it's described. But I did find myself thinking, like, metaphorically, like, why it is. I mean, obvious, that's clear, right? Sure. But, like, why it is, like, one of the things that is so fascinating about romance is, and I think ultimately, <laughs> like, you know, I get it. Like, it's not great, is this idea that you're going to have the best sex of your life only with the person who you're going to, you know what I mean? Like, <sighs> And I'm kind of like, meh, in real life, I think it's okay to just have great sex with someone and like, not spend the rest of your life with them or not have them be like, you know what I mean? And that's, I think, the part I'm kind of like, is this just an example of like romance being like, okay, we've sort of, we're debunking virginity, but like, what else could we do about this? <laughs> what else could we do to show? Oh, that's so interesting because like this predates the well anal is the new virginity that's right there is not a hint of anal sex in this book and i will tell you if it was written today i totally would have expected that so that's what i found myself thinking is that what this was was essentially the i know it's not it's like, the new virginity cool. right it's not super cool to like make a big deal of the hymen anymore but well, here's the deal the hymen's not up in there sure In either way, you guys, again, I know that I like to proselytize about the hymen not being where romance likes you to think it is, but it's not there. It's not inside. So, like, essentially, Lisa Valdez has given us, like, a new hymen. Sure. But the... It's it's complicated. My relationship to this book is complicated. (laughs) You know what's funny? I read it for the first time, and I was like, this feels weird, but fine. Sure, right. And now, like, as a 43-year-old who, like, you know, has has more awareness of the inside of her body. Yeah. And we've talked about this, too, right? Like, that our, you know, we talked about this in our bodily, autom- our bodily autonomy yeah. episode, that often historicals, especially, but all romance, kind of doesn't do a great job. It sort of walks us to the, walks us up to certain places in, of, about our, about, you know, female auton uh female you know body structure but doesn't give us like a clear understanding is my point it often seems metaphorical for like just you know at that time i mean i think marrying winterborn does this a great job of this where he's literally like don't women of your class talk know anything and she was like no not really it's up to the men to tell us right but i mean i think realistically speaking that is not something that only existed back then. I mean, this is one of the reasons why I'm always like, I'm like, we have more abstinence-only sort of controlling weird shit. Yep. We're teaching kids about sex now. And no one is like, oh, yeah, but no one knows anything about it. because, Like, imagine – I feel like sometimes I feel like that talk about historical is like, imagine 150 years from now, people be being like, oh, yeah, no one knew anything about sex. There was abstinence-only education. And you'd be like, mm, no. Right? Right. I don't know. <laughs> Look, the point is that I still don't understand what's going on up in there in passion. And also, I don't, I didn't Google. So it's my own ignorance at work here. I mean, and somebody, I, look, I, here's, I think it was Leslie Kelly on Twitter who was like, I just kept thinking, like, how is she carrying a baby if he's just up in there all the time? All the time. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> Because then, of course, right, so passion, so now, okay, new chapter. Right. Passion had this terrible marriage. And this is, like, there is some, you know, old school, like, old-timey baby stuff here. Yeah. She had this terrible marriage, and she believes she is barren and unable to bear a child because her terrible husband like impregnated like a milkmaid sure but not and and it wasn't her and he but he did not 
they did not ever conceive. And so she thinks she can't conceive. So she basically says this in classic historical romance way. She says this as though it is fact. Mm-hmm. And then um, Mark, the hero, is like, well, that is clearly fact. <laughs> so he's just like sh- shooting him. <laughs> there are so many things that were really interesting to me about mm-hmm. this book, right? Because she tells him, like, I can't get pregnant. And he and he thinks to himself and, you know, tells, you know, I saw. Which the- we should say. I can't get pregnant out of the mouth of a heroine in an old school historical is means the fastest I am absolutely way to knocked say up right now. Absolutely. Somebody's getting pregnant very fast. But the thing that I was fascinated by is his internal monologue at that point is, you know, that's actually probably not true, right? It it could be that she could still get pregnant because but he thinks I don't want to hurt her feelings by like giving her false hope. I mean, there's a part where he legitimately thinks, like, that probably isn't really true, but, you know, I don't really want to, like, make waves. This is going to hurt her feelings if I give her this idea that maybe it, maybe there's a chance. That's so interesting. I have read this how many times, and I don't remember that part. Because, well, like, also, yeah. he's just coming up in there all the time. All the time. But that's the other thing. He's, like, not at all concerned that there might be this outcome to this. And especially since the entire side plot of the book essentially is that his mother um, was having affairs and um, his brother is not his real brother. It's his half-brother. Right. Right? She had had an affair with the gardener. And so this, him being so like, he's not even pulling out. Extreme (laughs) laissez-faire on this uh, birth situation. Anyway, so, um, Leslie, that's a great question. About how on earth this is all happening at the same sure. time. But, you know, no. it's romance reasons. <laughs> romance cervix, I guess. Romance human physiology. And so, um, yeah. so here's the other thing that I really think about the structure of this book. The fact that it begins with sex and that the first half of this book is basically them meeting up, not knowing who the other one is, and having, like, remarkable sex in public, mostly, is fascinating to me because it establishes their... It almost backs into them being, you know, faded mates, right? Right. We are so convinced by the physical response they have to each other, that they are right for each other, that, like, the loves, the actual emotional love story is backburnered for a lot of this book. And it's kind of wild because you totally believe that they're, like, I mean, gaga for each other. Yes, right? Even though, of course, it's, like, basically a sex deal, right? He's, like, I've never really – we'll just do it for two months until you go back home. Oh, yeah, I've never really been never... interested in that long – you know, anybody sure. that long. And you've got to sure. go back home, and your dad's a vicar, so whatever. Except, like, right away, he's, like, where do you live? Sure. What's your deal? Who's sure. your dad? Like, sure. it's kind of wild how it works. Like, the structural – the actual structure of the characterization in this book is fascinating to me because I would say that there are I don't think I've ever read another romance novel where I believe the two characters and an, another like erotic romance maybe where I believe the two characters are like made for each other from the jump without basically any conversation because they don't they don't talk no they literally just they, well that's they stand over the Bible. Yes. Which is open to the gospel of Mark. And her name is Passion because she was born on Passion Sunday. And she's a, I mean, I'd like to say she's a deeply religious woman, right? Like, she really thinks a lot about, like, God and her duty and what's moral. I mean, this is where the Song of Solomon does a whole lot of heavy lifting in erotic, you Mm -hmm. know, religious romances. Um because she really believes, like, there's a lot of just, there's discussion of, like, this, this is an act of religion, yes. right? This is right. an act of pious, like, pious godliness. Um, and I think that's fast. Like, I think it's also fascinating because, but also it speaks to really great writing. Because there are so many places in this book where 
it could go really wrong. Okay, so I want to talk about them as characters for a minute because the way that we essentially okay, so you're like, how does it work then? How like what's what is the magician doing that makes it work? Because it's obviously like super hot. It, they're very like in touch with each other's bodies. But the other thing that's happening kind of simultaneously is then when they're not on page together, fucking which is screen a lot. At the Crystal Palace. Then what we're seeing is the way in which each of them is broken. So for for passion it's her she was really happy growing up and loves her sisters and felt really but then she marries this man and is unhappy oh that scenes yeah we'll talk about that later too although i have a theory about that i, <laughs> I made a it. face but yeah. it's fine <laughs> um but then we have um but then we have mark his mother is doesn't like essentially him. doesn't love him and it's pretty clear to us that he She has the second child to love because Mark is the one who, like, ruined her. And the other thing that's fascinating, I'm going to tell you, is he is terrible to her. And she is terrible. So terrible to her. To the point where I was like, people aren't mean like this on page anymore. Like, literally so terrible to each other. There is a lot. I kept thinking as I was reading it. I had the same exact thought. And she's terrible to him. He's terrible to her. And then the brother, Matthew, who yeah. is, like, beloved by both of them, like, loved, right. deeply loved by both of them, sees the truth, finds out the truth that the yeah. mother has been involved in blackmailing Mark to protect his paternity. Sure. And goes for the mom. Yes. Like, the brother is also very mean to the mom. Yes. And you're totally right. And I was thinking the whole time, this book marks that shift, right? We've talked about this, like, early aughts shift mm-hmm. in the way heroes are. Yeah. And the way the romance is. Like, that there is a sort of... You would never find... You might find a mother who is this mean... Yeah. But you would never find a mother this mean treated in this manner on page. Yes. The other part that was really fascinating is Mark Mark loves his brother. Like there is no doubt ever that he no, does not really love his nice. brother, right? But there is this part where he thinks to himself – Part of the reason he talks himself into marrying Charlotte, which is like Passion's cousin, right? He's like going to be blackmailed into marrying Charlotte. Is he's like, well, I do have to have kids, and Passion thinks she can't have them, so you know, whatever. That's dead in the water anyway. But he and he's like, I hate myself for it, but I cannot let the earldom go to like the grandson of the gardener. I mean, and he he skips over his brother almost, right? He loves his brother, but he and he and he, he's ashamed of it. And Mark says it. I'm sorry, not Mark. Matthew yeah. says it in the very beginning. He says, "Who cares if Passion can't have children? I'm going to marry Rosalind." His, I mean, yes, his love, right? right. Um, and we'll have a baby, right? And it it is fascinating to me that. The other thing you see that's very common now, and again, it's it's I understand why it's happening, is essentially you have people, you know, dukes who don't really care about the dukedom. And and you've written this, and it's Many that's times. very believable to me. But here you have someone who is deeply disinterested, actually, in the earldom, but it is still so ingrained in him to care about like that bloodline. And I was it was fascinating yep. to have these characters be so imperfect. Can I say something about this bloodline thing, though? Because, I mean, as you know, I really love a bloodlines plot. Um, in historicals, it's really tricky because dukes hold so much power, right? Earls yes. hold so—the aristocracy holds so much power that there are very, very few plausible— conflicts yes that can like tear them apart you know at that le- like high level conflicts yeah that they can't get past right because money talks and, and power talks and they have a seat in parliament and like there's truly like it is very difficult to imagine she says speaking as somebody who's currently writing like a series about taking down powerful men right right 
It is very difficult to come up with crimes that are or infractions that are so bad that they might impact a marriage or they might impact a, you know, happily a happiness factor. So this kind of bloodline thing does kind of it keeps coming back because when your power and your privilege and your money and everything rest on like something as simple as paternity. Yes. You know, it's really in many cases the only thing except for heavy debt you would do that but then then you come to readers don't like poor heroes so mark has this like really important reason that he's gonna like essentially kowtow to this black male and marry this woman and protect his brother even though it also means protecting his mother he's like i can't i would love to throw her to the wolves but if i do that it's going to impact Matthew. But the thing that's fascinating about passion is she essentially, once she figures it out, and by the way, listen, the scene where she figures it out, I had forgotten. So it's 70 or 75% through the book where they're finally, she's going out to dinner and she's been invited to Charlotte's house and everyone's going to meet this girl. You mean where she figures out that he is marrying Charlotte? Charlotte. Oh, it's heartbreaking. And here's the thing, like, I am so used to, like, these, these, you know, the f- terrible thing finally gets revealed to the characters and they are able to essentially, like, fake their way through it, like, put on their game face and just be upset later. She loses her shit and, like, essentially... She throws up. Th- she vom- she gets makes it out of the house, but she is like, I have to leave immediately. She cannot hide what this has done to her. And I, I loved that, too. I loved how, like, viscerally upsetting it was. And, he, and Mark wants to go after her, and Matthew's like, you cannot. You yeah. are here with this woman you're going to marry. You're going to ruin yes. this girl. You know, I also really... One of the tropes that this book plays beautifully that I forgot I loved so much is sacrifice for the love of someone else, right? Like, I know you love this person, and therefore... Yes. Like, when Mark, ultimately, when passion is like, I'm out, and Mark is like, look, I don't care anymore. I want to marry you. And then she's like, no, but I love... like. I love Charlotte. Charlotte, I love Charlotte. Like Charlotte, you're going to ruin Charlotte, and I can't live with that. And then Mark is like twisted in knots or tied up in knots with the emotional baggage of like he both he simultaneously will do anything and suffer any indignity and any scandal for passion, right? But understands that if he betrays Charlotte, game over. Right, because with passion. passion won't have a, any part of that. I mean, it really that, but that the that storyline only works. That conflict only works yeah. in the hands of like a very skilled author, because you have to be able to articulate. You have to make the characters yes commitment to each other so solid. Right. Well, and that's the thing I I was thinking. I was like, this, okay, the thing that's amazing about this book, right, as I was rereading it, as I was like, it's going to lead with sex and it's going to be like, but then the like crucible that they are in is one that is created by the the bounds of like society and like morality, Mm -hmm. right? He's bound by society. She's bound by morality and what she's learned, like, you know, with her father and, you know, and, and, you know, to be a good person. And this is what is the thing that is going to crush them, right? Not, and the thing that's amazing about that is when it starts, you're like, these two dummies are having sex behind a screen in public. That's going to be what brings them down. Oh, no. No one That's the thing that worked perfectly. Yep. And that is the thing that is so deeply interesting to me about this book is Mm -hmm. the things that seem most dangerous, right, are the things that are are great and perfect and have always worked and will always work between them. But it's figuring out the stuff that is dictated by not not in their bodies, right, the other stuff that is going to, like, trip them up and that they're going to have to figure out. And it is wrenching. It is mm-hmm. absolutely gut-wrenching, the whole back end of this book. Because you literally are like, how, how is this going to work out? 
Yeah, and on top of it, she's pregnant. Yes. Her father's a vicar. So, yes. like, there's a whole thing where she's pregnant and she says to her sisters, like, I'm pregnant. And they're like, okay, well, we'll go home. Like, right. Because we'll, she's like, I can't be pregnant and tell Mark because he'll ruin Charlotte. Right. Because he's a noble dude who will want to raise his own child. Yeah. Um, And then they're like, we'll go home. And she's like, but we can't really go I'll home because yeah. my father will lose the vicarage. So then it's like, well, maybe we'll go to France. <laughs> Yeah, right. And then there's like it's sort of it's very sort of neatly tied up at the end obviously everything. But what I really like about this is also you could fall into a very serious trap writing this book where you give them nothing but each other. Yes. And both Mark and Passion have a really lovely you know now oh, yeah. Well, I mean Mark has his brother, which is, you know, enough. Um but also Mark has a job. Mark mm-hmm. has a passion. Yes. He's an architect. And so there just is a real sense of these people being full, having full lives. Yes. With the exception of love, like tr- like faded, a faded mate. It's like, right. it's almost like these two could only have a faded mate. Like a, a regular yeah. mate is totally unnecessary to them. It's interesting, like, the journey you take with these characters, right? Yeah. Like, I, like, I will admit that I was kind of like, okay, this is fine. It's just hot, whatever. But then, like, there's a point where you're like, I actually was really like, these, this is an, I dislike Mark. He is such a jerk, right? And then you get to the point where you realize, like, how just emotionally wrecked he has been by, like, the constraints of his life. And therefore, not any regular person is going to be the person who can... Yeah. Like, that's, I think, what you mean, right? Like, someone who only who could understand his own, like, ha- that harm is yeah. going to be the only one who can heal him. He's like a backup Dane to me. Yeah. You know, like, there's, I mean... Mm-hmm. There will never be, like, the Marquis of Dane from Lord of Scoundrels is a different kind of everything. Right. But, like, there is a real sense of, like, Mark's Mark's having been broken. Yeah. And, again, it's that moment where you realize, like, it's not always believable. Not every writer can write a broken hero and actually make it believable. Where you're not, as a reader in 2021, going, Sure, whatever. Come on. You're rich, you're powerful, you're handsome, like, what's your problem? And that's the thing. I think it's, like, you really get that instead he's essentially, like, a high-functioning broken person, right? Yeah. He's, like, I figured out a way because of my money and my power and my good looks to, like, live a life where I don't even actually know how miserable I am until – the you know the blackmail scheme and this pressure from my mother this woman who has always hated me openly hated me and right and it's it's a really fascinating i think because so few like this there's true villainy on page in this book i would say mhm and it's honestly the kind of villainy that i think most people recognize which is like the the casual villainy of people in your own family mhm Right? Yeah. And, and a sort of sense of, you know, there's Charlotte's mother is willing to basically do anything to get her yes her child into a new world. Mm-hmm. Right? She's like Cinderella's stepmother. And, you know, it's funny because we get even two sides of Charlotte. Like, you know, we yeah. get Passion's love for her, but Mark Mark's disdain for her. She's too dumb to even realize she's a puppet is what he thinks at first. And it takes him a long time to realize, like, no, she's actually just completely innocent, right? Like, she's mm-hmm. – the apple in this fifth case did fall very far from the tree. She's nothing like her mother. She can't even – I mean, the whole book hinges upon this letter, right, that essentially, you know, his mother wrote admitting that it wasn't, you know, that this – Matthew was the gardener's baby. And Mm -hmm. finally, Charlotte gets it and, like, gives it to Mark, not even really having put two and two together. She's like, I'm afraid my mom's going to do something real bad with it. And he is like, she's like, like, I didn't even read it. And I'm like, Charlotte. Right. Charlotte, read the letter. (laughs) And so that's the part I think that's also it. We see, like, he. 
we see like his, that falling away where he can really kind of like, okay, I can fight my way out of th- these terrible ways I've been taught to think about women. Yeah. Well, and, and at the right? very end, he has that moment where he says to Charlotte, like, I'll I'll yeah, be your I'll, husband. Right. Because he, and it's, of course, in service to passion, it's that he knows right. he'll never win her back if right. Charlotte you right. know, doesn't agree to the dissolution of their, you know, arrangement. Right. And, but, I mean, Mark is deeply changed yes. by the end of this book. Like, at the yes. beginning of this book, he's all, you know, uh, oh, I'm I'm a loner, I'm a rebel. Right. I'll never have, I'll never have love, I'll never sure. be in a long-term relationship. For the lion's share of the book, he's, his entire plan is to get the letter and ruin Charlotte anyway. And I, I mean, he was basically like, look, she's collateral damage, but I am yeah. going to escape this trap that I've yeah. on my leg, right? He needs to be turned around. Right. And it's remarkable because you don't actually these days, you're right, there's a, right now we're going through a time in romance where the heroes are not ships to be turned around. Right. You know, they're already on page at the beginning, mostly decent. Right. And in this case, you know, Mark isn't that. Right. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing that I think that, so I, I just, there's like one other thing that really like moved me in this book, which is, in the end, when they, you know, he, she, like, literally, Passion's like, look, I, I've i told you you have to marry Charlotte, but I actually cannot stick around to watch you do this. So I'm going to head home and, yep. you know, kind of tell my totally dad. Totally fair. Also, guess, increasing. Yes, I'm pregnant, so I'm going to keep going, Dad, but I just wanted you to know. And um, Mark, you know, finds her. I mean, he's essentially like still in his wedding clothes. He, of course, they don't, you know, he's not married. Charlotte's like, I actually think I could do better. Cravat undone. Oh, yeah. He's Just a rumble mess. a mess. Hasn't shaved. And, you know, they take go a out. <laughs> they go take a walk. And, and it's never, it's what's really, like, they essentially, like, make vows to each other. And even mm-hmm. though it is not called a wedding, even though it is not, like they, the word vow is not used. It's really clear that like they are promising themselves to each other in a mm-hmm. way that both of them consider holy, literally. Mm-hmm. And I found myself really won over by this aspect of the book where it was like here, you know, an inspirational romance does not have to be, you know, divorced from like this physical relationship or right. like the, you know what I mean? It was deeply like deeply spiritual in this moment, like probably the best romance wedding I've ever seen on page in some ways is this one where it wasn't a wedding at all, but it was them saying like, I'm going to, you are the most important person to me and we are going to promise to be together. And, you know, and he says like, I shall spend all my days with you and enjoy a thousand small moments in each one. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful. It's lovely. It really is. Mm. What a book. It's really, I mean, I've reread it a number of times, and it's really great. It's because I think partially because of it, the balance between this kind of really intense emotional love story mm-hmm. and the wild bananas physicality yeah. of it. You right. just, it's cognitively dissonant in a lot of ways, and I love it for that. Yeah, I love it for here is a person again, we've talked about this as like debut novels, right? Yeah, right. It feels, this feels so much like a debut, like a great debut. And if you right. were going to make a list of like the 10 best debut romances, this oh, surely yeah. would be on it because it feels like she didn't know the rules. And I use rules with, like, quotation marks, right? Like, she didn't know all the ways that this book shouldn't work. And so she just wrote it, and it works. And I don't know, Lisa Valdez, if you're out there, stop listening to all those other people. Because we think (laughs) you're pretty great. (laughs) What about Primrose? Well, and I also assume that Charlotte and Captain What's-His-Name, you know, were a little friend. Yeah. We're going to get together. I mean, there was some really, there was that decent, John is really decent. I mean, there are some decent people. Well, that's the one I thought would get together with Charlotte. Yeah, John. Sure. What a name. 
Matthew, Mark, John. It's, the theme is clear. Classics for a reason. <laughs> I don't know. So then after this, you can read Patience, which is about Matt basically dominating yeah. Patience. I mean, and Matthew is like a fascinating character in his own right. Yeah, because he goes, we watch him fall in this book. Yes. And then right. in Patience, he has to, he, where he was a like kind of happy-go-lucky, like beta-y yeah, character right. in this book, in Patience, he is like. Yeah, different. Hyperdom. I feel like I'm trying to think if there's like other, I mean, this book was the so sister, full of. There's a moment of sister weirdness. So I actually have a. I so basically the sisters are all like skinny dipping because it was hot and they all this are is like in the past. Yeah, in the past when they were like teenagers. And then it's kind of like they all are like checking each other's quims out, if I'm gonna use the word and and I just kind of was like, I always assume that this is essentially like there was no internet, there was no scarletine. Who's gonna teach you stuff about your bodies if it's not gonna be your sisters? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I didn't really have a problem with it. I was like, sure. Somebody's got to tell you. And, it, I mean, like, it's fine. It's just, it's yeah. another moment of, like, that wouldn't exist. Yeah. Outside oh, of no. erotic. Oh, yeah. Completely not. Well, even Mark's, I mean, and I, but I felt like what was interesting to me about that was there's pretty extensive description of the kind of shenanigans Mark and his brother got up to at boarding school. Mm. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, measuring each other and compared to everybody Sperm else. Count. And how much, you know, who could fill Semen up. Semen quantities. Who, yeah. Like, who could shoot it further across the room. Oh, and listen. And I was kind of like. This if, is why Jennifer Porter loves this book. There's yeah. a lot of semen talk. But I was kind of like, if that is normal or we're kind of like, yeah, I could see, you know, guys, quote unquote, doing that. Why is it any less weird to think about girls sitting around and being like, hey, here's how my body works? I don't know. I don't know. It's interesting. It's interesting the way with it, like in the absence of sex ed, (laughs) how do people find out anything? Right. Yeah. I mean, even even Passion, who's been married for se- who was married for several years, well, but tells, never took her clothes off. Never, I mean, this tell, is right. I was never a naked. Classic. In him. Yeah, it's oh, a yeah. classic. Like I'm a widow. Like she's basically right. a virgin widow. Right. I mean, right. He just came no, and did his duty, but yeah, it was never. Like, I don't know what was going on down there. Yeah. Right. And that I think is also a commentary just on you know. I don't, I mean, I was very, I was very interested, I guess, in just in that aspect of it. Like, how do you know what you know? How do you know what you're capable of? How do you love your body and what it can do or not do? Those were like really interesting Mm -hmm. questions to me in this book as I read it this time. Yeah. You know, I think when we talked, when we talked about sports romances, whenever we talked about sports romances, you were taught, you have talked about this body thing before that like sex and sports romances should kind of be astronomically good because right. here are these people who can literally make their bodies do anything. Right. And so maybe, you know, yeah, your point about the body being so present here is also a little bit that. It's a little bit like yeah. in the hands of the right person, yeah. you know, your body can do remarkable right. things. Right. Because so can your heart, so can your mind. So right. Can your, I guess, yeah, like, that's what I mean. You can achieve, like, love yes. beyond measure and then also literal vagina beyond measure. <laughs> <laughs> and there you go. <laughs> but, I mean, I think whether or not I think that's true, I do think that this book makes a really compelling case for, like, erotic romance being about the person where, like, your heart and your mind and your soul are, like, the closest together, right? Like, they're one, literally. It's You can't divorce those things from each other in a great erotic romance. That's what I think I came away thinking yeah. in this book. It's interesting. It does kind of set, it sets a new level of what an erotic should be. Well, I think in every really good one. I think it's also really interesting that it does it without, you know, at this point in time, it sort of predates, you know, after Fifty Shades came out, there was just that explosion of erotics where yes. every every yes. heroine was innocent and tied up. Yes. And every hero was like a sure. know, wildly experienced dom. Right. And this doesn't ever no. touch it. She never 
No. You know, there is a sense, there is obviously a sense that passion did not have a sexually, you know, rewarding marriage. Right. But she's not stupid about it. Like, she's not no. innocent about it. And I think there's something really interesting about that, too. Like, this is a, I don't know, there's so much that's sort of revolutionary about the way passion is written. Yeah. Yeah, the I book agree. and the character, I think. Yeah, I mean, I I feel a little like, like it's calling it shot. I don't think there's anything, you know. You name a character passion because of Passion Sunday, <laughs> you know, like that's like the reason for it. But this is like her, you know. And then it's like this is an untapped part of me I've never really discovered. And I think there's something beautiful to the idea that even though this is like super over the top, that like when you fall in love or when you find someone that is like a perfect match for you, whether it be like a romantic relationship or not, that you're going to like discover something in yourself that you hadn't brought forth before. Yeah. And not in like in a, in an amazing way, just that like we're all capable of so much more than we ever really thought we were. And sometimes the right person comes along at the right time and you see what that is. And and that's true for both of them. I'm really glad we did this one because I think it often gets sort of laughed off. But it is, it exists in romance history for a reason. Yeah. So if you haven't read it, everyone, now you know what you're in for. You can then follow it with Patience. And Lisa Valdez also has a short story called The Tower, which is a retelling of Rapunzel, um, which I remember reading and liking. So that's Lisa Valdez. If you're listening, Lisa, and you'd like to come on Faded Mates, we'd love to have you. We'll keep all your secrets. <laughs> um, and, uh, okay, what else? what else is there to say? It's 2022. 2022. You can find us at FadedMates.net. You can find us on Twitter at FadedMates, on Instagram at FadedMatesPod. Our next read-along, do we know? No. We don't know. (laughs) Sorry. Check show notes. We'll decide after. Well, listen. Here's the deal. I'm moving. Right. It's actually not going to be Monroe. It's Monroe. Oh, of course. Duh. It's Monroe, you guys. It's Monroe. Sure. Cressley Coles Monroe, for those of you who didn't listen to us um, for the first season, um, we don't, we haven't read it yet, but we don't recommend starting with Monroe. No. We have a plan for the Monroe episode, which we haven't announced yet, but we will announce, so stay tuned for that. Um, but that is the next read-along for those of you who are Cressley Cole fans. There will be another, you know, read-along in the future. <laughs> After we sort out January, which... Is a lot. Sarah's moving. It's a lot. So we are going to have an interstitial. We're going to have a couple of trailblazers. We're going to have Monroe. Um, We have some cool stuff. Yeah, but I think the next six weeks, you know, Monroe's the next read along and then we'll decide what's after that. Um, what we will put on Twitter, though, and I will do it for inst- we'll do it for Instagram and Twitter, and I'm making this uh, promise without talking to Jen. But I am going to make you a list of the four or five places that we think you can jump into Immortals After Dark. If yes. you're not in the market for 18 straight books, which you know it's Fair. 2022, and who knows what's <laughs> coming. Um, but there are there are logical and reasonable on ramps to the series, point. and we will do a quick a quick post on both of those places, and maybe even put it in show notes where you can start if you want to just get a little sense of what's going on. Yes, agree. All right, have a good one, everybody. Bye.